Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Les McEwen. He's the founder and CEO at Predictable Success. Les, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think, well, you've done and worked with basically what all the most popular companies at this point um, on the planet. But maybe <laughs> before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. Well, I probably only have to speak for three or four sentences before people will work <laughs> out that uh, although that I currently live in Maryland, I'm looking out over the beautiful Chesapeake Bay as we speak. I'm actually not from these parts. I'm originally from uh, Texas. No, sorry. <laughs> from, uh, I, I'm from Ireland. I'm from Belfast and uh, originally. Uh, that's the part of Ireland that you come from. If you have any sense, you go to Dublin. But wow. if you grew up in Belfast, as I did, then you want to come from it. And I did about 25 years ago. But my accent, even though I've been here a quarter of a century, has decided not to fully relocate. <laughs> Very cool. So walk us through what did you take in uh, university and why? I never went to university. Okay, uh, I never made it. Uh, I was all set to be the first in my family you know that story the first one to go to college yeah and i was going to go to a beautiful college called st andrews which is in scotland okay and i wanted to be a journalist and i was going to study politics philosophy and economics and then back in those days being a journalist meant putting on a macintosh and getting a shorthand notebook and standing in war zones Sure. And uh, <laughs> I, I bailed at the last minute. I was all set, ready to go. And I decided I didn't, I didn't want to go to college. Part of it was my family was white collar. Okay. You know, we didn't have a lot of money kicking around. And I thought I was going to put too much of a strain on the system. So long story short, my eldest daughter became the first person in our family to go to college. She uh, sort of showed me up a little bit by going to Oxford. Um, and uh, I signed up to become a chartered accountant, which is the UK equivalent of a CPA. Right. And I had the very last year uh, which uh, in which I could do it. It became all graduate the year after I did it. So I did what are called serving articles. In other words, I paid somebody for the first three years for the privilege of studying under them. And I became a chartered accountant, a CPA. Interesting. That's really fascinating. Okay. So walk us through the rest of your career, maybe some highlights along the way, up into what you're doing now with predictable success. Sure. Uh, and I warn you, I, I, I've got a lot of miles on the clock, and you did ask. So it's good. It's good. 
so uh, I, I qualified as a as a, as a chartered accountant, and I qualified quite well. I, I came first in the national exams. Got wow. myself a little bit of a reputation within that industry, which um, did me no harm at all. When I set up my shingle, so to speak, as soon as I qualified, I went out on my own. And um, at that point, the the UK government—I was still back in the UK then, obviously—were putting a huge amount of resources into entrepreneurship. Uh, a lot of uh, there were a lot of tax write-offs, there were cheap loans, all sorts of stuff. And the main reason was that the UK at that time was essentially a branch economy of here, North America, and uh, South Korea, of all places. So if Daewoo or LG or General Motors, you know, caught a cold, we would lose 15,000 jobs in somewhere like Leeds or Liverpool. And so the UK government really wanted to push uh, entrepreneurship throughout the UK. And I, I just caught that wave and I got them a, a reputation in Ireland as being a go-to person to, you know, make cash flow projections, get a loan from a bank for people. Uh, and then I started to help people structure what their business might look like. I was fascinated with business models. And long story short, um, people started to ask me if I would actually join them on the startup team. And I got to cherry pick six to eight opportunities a year. And lo and behold, by the time I was 35, I had helped launch 42, uh, I'll say organizations, because there were some not-for-profits as well as for-profits. And, you know, uh, Kevin, even a dumb Irishman, and that, that that's me, <laughs> if you do something that number of times, you begin to see repeating patterns. And, and uh, you know, somewhere around the fifth or sixth, I got more interested in the patterns than I did in the actual businesses themselves. So these were things like graphic design agency, uh, tool and die manufacturer, which you couldn't even start in Europe these days. There isn't a cost base for it. Uh, I bought the master license for Pizza Hut in Ireland. There's businesses like that. But I was fascinated with what I was seeing as I believed to be predictable patterns in success in the startup and early stage growth. So in my mid-30s, I'm 187 years of age now, in my mid-30s, uh, a fellow, a friend of mine, uh, sadly now deceased, wonderful chap called Will McKee, um, he was like me, although we didn't have the word back then, he was like me, a serial entrepreneur. And the okay. two of us were approached by the UK government to build what essentially became one of the first ever incubator units. And again, we didn't have that phrase back then, right. but uh, there was no there's no Y Combinator, there were no tech stars. There were a few things called science parks, where a sit, which were essentially an, uh, an attempt to spin off um, uh, what we would now call tech from university research departments. But there was no real entrepreneurial incubator unit. So we started one in West Belfast, of all places. And it was in the middle of a civil war back there then. Oh, wow. And um, amazingly, despite all of this, it was a huge success right out of the park. Our first two years were phenomenal. We really did help turn around the economy there. And before we knew it, we had people sitting in the back of the room who were visiting economic, uh, I suppose, investment agencies from all over the world. And again, long story short, 10 years later, in my late 30s, early 40s, and my partner and I had built what was essentially a consulting company with about 110 people and 13 offices worldwide. And wow. we were helping you know, we were helping launch businesses everywhere. And not only that, the economic development agencies 
we're also asking us to help get existing business to, to second, third, and fourth stage growth. So I did that for about 10 years. And my main goal personally, and I'll finish with this, because it takes us up to what I do now, was that I really believed I was seeing a co cohesive growth model that didn't just go through the startup phase and the early stage growth, but went all the way up uh, to very, very large organizations. And I, and I was enjoying what I was doing, but I really wanted to prove the model out. And I had a fantastic opportunity in 1998. I am very, very long, old and long in the tooth. Uh, a great a friend of mine gave me the opportunity to, to move to the West Coast. So I left uh, Ireland and went to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I got to work to, with fantastic companies like you know Microsoft, some microsystems, American Express, you mentioned, uh, referenced this at the start. And the whole point was just to prove this growth model out. I wanted to see if it, um, it applied, if I could be predictive about success. Uh, at a very large scale and and so it proved and so uh, by the mid aughts is when i gave it a name called a predictable success the, the the growth model and and that's what i've been doing ever since teaching and consulting and coaching with it fascinating so walk us through because you've written a bunch of books on all this stuff that we're going to talk about what exactly do you do and how is it different and and what do you how do you really help these companies because you've like you mentioned and i mentioned earlier is like you've literally done this at some of the biggest companies and if you go to your website like you have testimonials from like the ceo of you know american express and ford and like big huge brands right right well, what I, what I really bring to the table is a recognition uh, of just what it means to be at a certain stage in growth and the fundamental challenges that brings. Okay. So we may, if we have time, we can get into it, but there are, there are essentially seven stages in the, in the uh, life cycle of any organization. There are three growth stages, the pinnacle, and then three decline stages. So you just think of a of the arc uh, of a ball, if you were to toss it in the air, that's what a life cycle looks like. Now, for all of our listeners, the vast majority of people and me when I started, when you start a business, you typically have got two stages in mind. <laughs> you think, okay, this is gonna be tough, right? Uh, and this might not work. I mean, even if we don't know the statistics, um, which are that about 80% of all new ventures fail in the first three years, Right. Even if you don't know those stats, you're pretty well aware that starting something is a risky venture. Yep. Uh, and so we tend to think, oh, hey, this is going to be tough. I have to buckle down. I probably have to, you know, tighten my belt for a while and change my expectations for a living um, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm obviously doing it because I think I'll beat the odds. And then I'll get to the next stage, which is I have a viable business. And that'll be wonderful. And that's about it. That's basically what we think. If we think about anything beyond that it's just sort of more than you know bigger than uh, maybe if we're very ambitious we think okay uh, you know i don't know what the uh, what the uh, analog is at the moment but as you, you and our listeners will know i mean for years everybody was talking about this will be the uber of such and such this right. will be them right. so so maybe we think that you know we have some you know i want either of a mom and pop or one of a bigger business but we don't think about actual stages but 
in fact, what happens is as we move through each of those seven stages, the leadership need fundamentally shifts and it brings huge behavioral, emotional stress on initially the founding group. And if they stay there, continuing the founding group, uh, but then maybe it's at a later stage in growth, it's a, you know, it's a professional uh, team of leaders. Um, and whichever of those stages that you're in, you've really got to adapt your leadership style uh, or you'll get stuck and at worst you'll fail. So it's first of all, just that recognition that of what stage I'm in, I help people identify that. Where do I want to go to? Uh, which is not always just as obvious as it might think. And then what do I need to do to get there? And the answer is almost always, most of it is in the four inches between the ears of the leaders. It's not changing your product mix. It's not changing your business model. When, when businesses hit, have problems, most people think it's an external factor. It almost always, the more fundamental the, the crises, the more likely it's actually a leadership issue and not the environment or the demographics or the business model or whatever. Interesting. Okay. So how do you work with leadership and to basically tell them that? Because I think sometimes like people don't, they, they're successful. They're already successful. They're looking to grow. They don't like to be told that, well, to, to actually grow, you guys need to change some things. Yes, that's absolutely true. The pain has got to be enough to recognize that. Uh, and what happens in most cases, Kevin, is that folks will either read one or more of my books or hear me speak. And the, the model, because I didn't invent it, I didn't, you know, none of this was research. No in, interns were used in, or harmed in the making of this model. It's just observational, right? It's, it's just what's there. All I did was put names around it, give it some vocabulary. Uh, almost always the people I work with intuitively get, I mean, like within minutes, a big aha that says, oh, my goodness. And first of the first thing they think is, OK, I'm not alone. This what this guy is telling me is right. The issues I'm facing right now are a natural part of growth. That doesn't make it easier in and of itself, but it really helps to recognize that you're going through. You're not going. You didn't become stupid. You're going through issues that every growing organization goes through, and uh, the need to make those leadership shifts typically becomes evident when you realize what the what the issues are. Let me give you a, a, a sort of if I can just take a minute and give you, you know, a, a worked example. That, that was going to be my next question to you. So that's that's perfect. <laughs> so the very first stage of growth is I call it early struggle. Okay. Uh, it, it's somewhat uh, similar to the startup phase. I'll, I'll, I'll come back in a minute as to why I don't use that phrase. But any of, uh, of our listeners, uh, uh, probably all of our listeners, be familiar with the concept of an early struggle. Everybody knows what it is. Yep. It's essentially, I'm going to be really generalistic here. It, it lasts about three years. Uh, and it's it's a race to find a profitable, sustainable market. That's all it's a, that's all it is. It's a race to find a profitable, sustainable market. It has to be all of those things. It's got to be a market, not not a customer. It's got to be sustainable and it's got to be profitable. 
And the reason it typically takes three years even to succeed is that we spend the first year in denial that our original idea isn't what the market wants. We spend the second year working out what the market really does want, and we spend the third year getting traction. Now, for that 80% that, that don't, don't make it, there's one or two reasons for that. Uh, the first reason is not realizing that this is a race against time. And it particularly happens in the tech industry where, you know, we're back to being overinvested in again. And what happens is you get your second round of fancy funding and you go out and buy 12 Aeron chairs and a granite top <laughs> conference table and think you've got closer to viability and you haven't. You haven't done, done a single thing. By the way, just as an aside, one of the things that one of the reasons I don't use the word startup is because people like me who write and talk uh, about business have done a, 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 a committed a venal sin on the founder community which is we've glorified the concept of a startup the yeah, whole the, the, the whole burnishing of the notion of startup uh, it's it's pitiful and it's horrible you know it, it, i tell people all the time there's only one valid strategy for a startup and that is to stop being one as soon as possible because if yeah. you remain a startup, you will die. It's just a question of how long it's going to take. Do we want to maintain some of the features of being a startup, like being flexible and all this? Of course we do. Anyway, the second thing that um, is necessary, in, as well as finding our profitable, sustainable market, that's key to being successful in that early struggle phase, is that the lead person in the founding team, or if it's just a founder, that person they need to be one uh, one of four possible leadership styles and that's a visionary leader uh that, that's shorthand I'll, I'll, the, the, really quickly what i mean by that is it's somebody who takes risks somebody who sees the big picture it's somebody who if they can't if they if they have to do the detail they'll grind it out but they're really much more interested in getting things started now that visionary leader is an essential part element of success however all successful visionary leaders, even if they don't know my terminology, they will intuit that they need somebody who's actually going to be their finisher. If they're the starter, they're the one that keeps coming up with the ideas. They need someone that I call the operator. It's the second leadership style. They need initially an operator, eventually multiple operators. And operators are just ruthless finishers. They just get stuff done. That's what defines them. You don't give them hyperbolic, you know, adjectives like you would to the visionary who's, you know, charismatic, got good communication skills, all that sort of stuff. The operator just gets stuff done. And it's a visionary operator combo that gets the business out of early struggle and into the second stage, which I give a highly technical name. I call it fun because that's what it is. Right. That's the stage that we intuit that we will get to. That's that's you know, that this is, a, this is basically it. And fun is just that. It's fun. Visionaries conducting a little mini mini orchestra of operators. You go do this. You, you go sell that. You go install that. You go make that customer happy. You do our admin. There's just a bunch of operators doing this stuff with the visionary conducting this. And in fun, we say yes to everything. And somehow, somehow we deliver it on time. You know, you want a thousand cases of my marijuana infused mineral water in Beijing by next Thursday. Of course, we can do that. No idea how, but we will do it somehow. And, you know, we reach Friday evening righteously exhausted. 
you know, hands on her knees, panting, but really, really feeling good because, I mean, obviously we have, even in fun, we have our days and their challenges and so forth. But that highly evangelical stage of our growth is, it's a, it's a, it's a great stage. You find your profitable, sustainable market, you know, board meetings are right up in an elevator. You meet somebody over dinner and open a lunch and open an office in Chicago just because you like them and they like you. You know, we just say yes to stuff and make it happen. What happens, and this is where I'm, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll finish this part of the story because I want to talk about the intuitive nature of all of this. What happens is the very success that, that fun brings, brings with it creeping but irresistible complexity. We just add more staff, we add more locations, we add more products, we add more services. The business just gets a little more complex this day, a little more complex the next day. And like a frog in slowly boiling water, we don't really notice how the environment is changing one degree at a time until that point at which suddenly the complexity begins to eat us. Right. I don't know if you've ever been in that position, yeah. but 100%. you start, to, we start to make mistakes. We start to stand on our, you know, tromp on our own feet. We, you know, we sign a stupid lease without really reading it. We, we fail to turn up an important client meeting. We order, you know, the wrong batch of raw materials. And that stage is a stage I call whitewater. Okay. And that's where the vast majority of people begin to think, oh, okay, I get this. That's exactly where I am. And there's a big behavioral change required. It's the, one of the first existential stages after uh, early struggle. And it's this, we need the third leadership style. It's a style I call a processor. We've got to bring somebody in to put systems and processes in place at an enterprise-wide level for the very first time. And that, for the very first time, brings leadership conflict because the visionary and the operators can finish each other's sentences. They've built years of sweat equity. They built the myths and legends of the business. And now we have these processors coming in and putting systems and processes in place, and it drives the visionary and the operators crazy. And that's where I typically, it's the first place that I start helping people. Okay, so how do you work with companies and leadership to bridge that gap? Well, that's where um, the, it was so important for me, Kevin, to come here to the U.S. so long ago. Obviously, I liked it enough that I never went back. Um, the, I was trying to find a permanent solution to that. I had okay. been spending uh, the previous 10 years uh, working with, I, 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 was, I had slowly got this terminology together. And I got to the point where I can recognize visionaries, operators, and processors, you know, at, a, at quite a distance away. You know, for example, uh, you open a clamshell laptop of a, of a processor. I'm going to exaggerate here for caricature sake, but, you know, so you open a laptop that a processor owns, they're in a single stray document on the on the home screen, right? Everything's in a folder under which there are a whole series of nested folders. And if anything dares, you know, escape, it gets filed pretty quickly. You open an operator's laptop <laughs> and every document anybody ever sent them is sitting there, you know, because <laughs> they bothered with that nonsense. And thank goodness for search. That's how we find documents. And as to the visionary, you know, uh, they're the next 
Mac with the newest chip is arriving tomorrow <laughs> by FedEx class and, and their red haired cousin will set it up for them. But, you know, I can recognize those styles. And so I was spending quite a lot of time helping uh, visionary operator processor teams um, really learn what the hot buttons are between uh, that, that set off the internal conflict that occurs here. So, you know, for example, the visionary thinks the processor is half glass empty because they're always saying no to stuff. Visionaries say yes immediately to anything. I'd right. have to be talked off a ledge to say they can't do things. <laughs> Processors say no Im immediately. As a CPA, I'm well aware of this. We're just trained to say no at the start. Now, maybe you'll talk me into saying yes. And operators are just looking at these pair thinking, just give me my marching orders. What do you want me to do? Are we opening this office in Chicago or are we not? They just want to get on with it, you know? You ask a processor to move a photocopier, they just walk over, they'll unplug it and they'll move the darn photocopier. You ask the processor to move a photocopier, they start writing a memo, you know, to the photocopier <laughs> removal. Uh, you ask a visionary to move the photocopier, they say, we got a, we got a photocopier? I didn't know that. Is it, one of, is it the best photocopier? There? So, the, you know, these are different styles, and I, I'm not bore you with it, but, the, you know, I had built a long, uh, uh, rep, good reputation in getting visionary operator processor teams to work together. The problem is it didn't stick. Okay. After about six months, they'd be back to driving each other crazy. There wasn't a permanent fix. And the reason I came out to the US is that I knew with larger organizations, they obviously had found an answer because many of them had got into the peak stage, which I call predictable success, and had clearly been there for quite some time. And I had an opportunity to just sit, go sit and audit. Uh, thankfully for me, back then, Meetings were all physical, very little in the world of physical meetings, so I, a virtual meeting. So I got to actually see senior leadership teams from just great organizations work together. And here's what happened. I'm sitting there and I'm watching. I'm saying, okay, there's, I can, there's the operator because she's just squirming seven minutes into any meeting. And the operator's left leg is going up and down like crazy. And they're texting their their uh, assistant under the table saying, dear God, please send me an emergency. Just get me out of here. They hate meetings, right? So I could see yeah. that. I see the visionaries because they're standing, lounging against the wall in that I own the room sort of uh, stance that visionaries <laughs> yeah. take up. And, uh, and you know, hyperlinking from A to Q. The only thing they don't want to talk about is the is the agenda because they were bored with it as soon as they saw it. And the processor's sitting there and they've got 60 pages worth of PowerPoint for every agenda item. And they will not <laughs> Be, they will not be stopped. They are going to go through all 60 pages. And if you interrupt them, they'll smile nicely and go back to page one. So you don't interrupt them. So I could see all of that. But here's what I saw in those organizations that were firmly in predictable success. I saw a fourth style emerged. It emerged okay. in the room. Now, I'm out in the West Coast in San Francisco Bay Area. So I'm, I'm, I'm all prepped for some woo-woo stuff. And I see some woo-woo stuff which is that this style emerges. It's not personified. There are a few cases when there was a person who was clearly pushing this, but rarely it was mostly the teams had almost like an overdrive they could move into. And it was a fourth style, which I had to name it in order to try to grapple with. And I called it the synergist style. And again, long story short, took me a few years to really work out what was going on. But I got there in the end. What happens with high-performing teams in organizations that have achieved uh, this stage I call predictable success, and I'm happy to share the defining characteristics of it, um, they have developed what I call a synergist style. And what that means is this. It's a very simple 
very pragmatic thing. When they were talking about non-trivial items, right, something important, they they would strive to come to the answer solution that was best for the organization as a whole, as opposed to pushing for an answer that would let them scratch their visionary itch or their processor itch or their operator itch. Instead of, you know, the visionary needing every answer, every solution to be a grand swing for the fences that, you know, changes everything. They could put up with, a, a visionary synergist can put up with a grinded out detailed processor laid answer if that's the right thing. The operator, instead of trying to get out of meetings at all costs because it kills them, an operator synergists finds it difficult but sits there because they know they've got to give their real world feet on the ground input into high quality decisions. And a processor synergist realizes, hey, you know, it's pretty good if I can just get to my conclusions, the final slide in the deck, talk about that and then take questions instead of killing everybody. You know, I make, I'm giving just a few cutesy examples, Yeah. but this overall overarching uh, drive to, as a team to make the best high quality team-based decisions for the enterprise as a whole is an incredibly mundane, soporific statement, but it's the key to getting to that stage I call predictable success. So you have all of the four styles working cohesively together, visionary, operator, processor, synergist. Fascinating. Okay, so what does predictable success mean to you and how do you stay at that? Because once you're kind of at the top of the mountain, there's only one way to go down or to go, right? And <laughs> right. that's down. So it's, it's tricky to stay up there, right? It is very tricky. And, the, and the, the answers to the two questions are a little intertwined. And if the listeners, excuse me, I'm just going to take a glug of water here for a second. Sure. So if you think about the fun stage, so if you recall the arc of the life cycle, we've got three stages coming up and that's very struggle, fun and white water. We've now reached predictable success, which is the apex of that arc. Obviously in fun, we grow. In fact, in, in relatively terms, we grow like crazy. I mean, when you just come out of early struggle, your market share, uh, I mean, technically the equation is it's 2% of the square root of squat. And it means that, you know, your first substantial customer, you've just grown 100%. Well, actually, I think you've grown by infinite percent, but your second customer, you grow 100%. You know, so the, the absolute figures may be small, but the relative growth is qu quite high. In fun, you grow, but there's always a cap on that growth. That's the that's the point at which you hit whitewater. And so right. typically in fun, the rate of growth slows. And if you want to, uh, quote, just be a mom and pop, you can, uh, or a boutique business, you can stay in fun indefinitely, just keep polishing the apple and, uh, you know, squeeze, a, you know, a few percentage points out here and there, but there'll always be a cap on your market. I, I personally, you know, I've been in predictable success with many of my businesses. My consulting business is resolutely in fun. I've decided to stay here. I do not want to build McKinsey. I do not want to build a Bain and company. And so that puts a cap on my growth, right? But I've accepted right. that. The difference between uh, fun and predictable success and the reason why it's worth struggling with and getting th uh, through the pains of whitewater because it is very painful is that in predictable success you can scale 
you can uh -huh. scale. And, and, the, and, and that is essentially the difference between a convex growth curve and a concave one. In, in predictable success, you can hit that J curve where the rate of growth can actually accelerate. The way Jeff Immelt uh, explained it when in the good days, in, uh, GE, he said back then, he said, when I put my foot on the gas pedal in this organization, the car goes forward. Um, the way I describe it, uh, my fourth book is called Do Scale. It's got that strange title because it's part of a series of books called Do, you know, Bake Bread, Do Go for a Walk. I wrote a book called Do Scale. And the way I explain it there is growth in the fun stage. If you think of the, of the, of the size your business could be as a tall building, yeah. you know, and the top floor is the biggest you can be, growth in fun is all about charging up the stairwell. It's There's a lot of manual effort involved. You know, the leader jumps and says, come on, let's go up a couple of flights of stairs, comes back from a conference, visionary leader. You don't want to talk to a visionary leader, you know, the Monday morning after they've been to a conference or been on vacation, because they've come back with a hundred new ideas. So I'll charge up the stairwell <clears throat> and everybody follows and we all charge up a couple of flights of stairs, you know, executing our strategic growth plan. And we, we do pretty well and we get a hood of breath and we stop. And we regather ourselves and then kick through the doors and up the stairwell again. It's a bit like that in fun. A lot of effort involved. Right. In predictable success, you go over to the elevator bank. You press a button, you walk in, you press the floor, and you go. Now, I'm being obviously very simplistic here. But the key distinction I want to make is that growth in fun depletes the very resources. And I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about energy, enthusiasm that's required to really scale. In predictable success, we've put systems and processes in place that allow us to rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and really achieve that scale. Interesting. No, I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to dive into each one of the books because you've written a number of them so do you want to kind of give us what each book is called a little bit of an overview and kind of how they all kind of tie together yes and it's important that uh, to realize they do all tie together so the uh, there's four books in this series uh, i've actually written seven but three of them weren't uh, 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 directly related to the predictable success uh, the first was is predictable success Okay. 2000 uh, came out in 2010 and it uh, goes in in detail on this to the seven stages so it goes through all seven growth stages helps the reader recognize which state which stage they're in the second book in the series followed just a couple of years thereafter and it's called the synergist and it's about those four leadership styles visionary operator processor synergist and it relates them to the growth stages now it's important uh, for me to say this, that, that the predictable success model as a whole is those two books, uh, and they are intimately connected. Uh, they do stand alone, which is why I published them that way, because it would have been just more than anybody would have been interested in reading if I put them all together. But they are highly symbiotic and they connect together. So the seven life cycle stages in predictable success, the four leadership styles in uh, the synergist the two books that followed go into uh, specific parts of this in more detail. My third book, Do Lead, um, which is my favorite, uh, is my favorite for a specific reason. Okay. I talk there about leadership as 
being something that anybody in an organization at any level, no matter what their title is and whether they are a recognized leader or not, can do. Leadership, I, I, I take a lot of time to point this out. We have um, uh, put leadership and the concept of leadership in one particular bucket almost always, which is the formally accepted leader. And that's an important role. I'm not saying that that's not something that's that's very important. But leadership doesn't have to be permanent. Doesn't You don't have to be a leader all the time. You can exhibit not so random acts of leadership and a and a not, a not so random act of leadership is anything that gets a group of two or more people closer to their common goal. Now, you're working on any sort of a team. That team has a goal. It will have a leader, most likely. But you can commit a not so random act of leadership. That's something that helps your team get closer to its goal. And so do lead is about taking the visionary operator processor synergist concepts and allowing anybody in the organization to exhibit not to random acts of leadership, or if you're a, or if you are a recognized leader, it helps you understand more about your leadership styles. And my final book in the same series is called Do Scale, uh, is uh, essentially about that distinction between predictable success and fun. It's about if you've got yourself to predictable success, how do you then scale? Because one of the things that's um, uh, not that intuitive, it is that you can get, you can find yourself in predictable success and then fail to take advantage of the very opportunity that it brings with it, which is the ability to scale. There are people who have got their business to predictable success and don't put their foot in the gas pedal. So it's really about how to do that. Interesting. Well, and I think realistically, one of the hardest things to do, right, as a business leader or anybody even if you're at a startup correct is to what just basically keep that scaling right and, and kind of keep growing and kind of trying to figure out how to kind of keep your staff motivated because i think at some point once companies going to figure it out they're at a successful level I think a lot of people kind of get bored, including the leadership. Have you found that, or do you agree with that? Well, what I'm finding more, um, most, more often is that a business will get caught up in a temporary, uh, I, I gotta take us all the way back to MBA studies for a moment or two, just to finish this sentence. Sure. And you may recall uh, something called a pestle study p-e-s-t-l-e okay. yeah uh, it's a way a way of uh trying to anticipate where change may come from so it essentially says look at the uh political this is the p-e-s-t-l-e political economic social technological legislative or environmental changes and somewhere from those seven areas are likely to be the things that are going to uh, most impact you externally over the next period of time it's and it's a very useful tool what ha it happened what happens is that it sometimes happens the other way around that Something happens from one of those areas that gives a business a temporary uh, sense of permanent scalability. So somebody changes a law somewhere or some demographic shift or, you know, a, a, a pandemic hits and suddenly you've got a tiger on your hands. Now, you know, I, I don't want to be unthinking. I, I know that uh, the last number of years have just been horrendous, but there were also a lot of businesses that have done incredibly well out of it uh but 
they don't necessarily know how to trap that. They don't know how to turn that into something permanent. Or you get first mover advantage in a certain market and, you know, you're you're riding that wave for a period of time. And uh, before you know it, you know, you're Pinterest or something right. uh, because you, you didn't know. I mean, you go back to a company like Kodak. Uh, Kodak. Uh, for our younger listeners, they may have to go Google this. Kodak owned cameras. And, it just dominated. Uh, it was like Apple and the iPhone. Like Absolutely. But until the day they died, <laughs> they were listed as a paper and chemicals company. And that's what they believed they were. They believed their business was made out of combining chemicals onto paper. Because we used to have to go to you know, the drugstore and leave our um, roll of film in to get it developed. They didn't own imaging, right? They, it's, they didn't know how to trap that for longevity. And I see that happen a lot, that something comes out of the blocks. There is something that looks like, walks like scalability, quacks like scalability, but it isn't scalability. It's a hit. Um, and there isn't the leadership structure first of all and then the infrastructure secondly to turn that into something um enduring oh fascinating so you also host your own podcast what do you talk about and and what's the podcast called it's called scale with predictable success okay. and uh i just get people on who you know have either themselves or with others uh, achieved predictable success. And I, I try to spread it around as much as possible. It's not all for profit CEOs. Um, often it's uh, uh, so I, I, I realized after I published the first book, I started to get calls from faith and cause based organizations who were using it a lot and the principles apply just as much there. So uh, we have uh, leaders, you know, well, I've got lead pastors of huge churches use the model. So it's great to have them come on. And we, we just we just talk about essentially leadership challenges. And uh, if there was a, a common theme, uh, it's the need for self-awareness as a leader. I think it's that's just one of the most important things that you need in order to navigate these seven stages that I've been talking about that you got to realize, and Marshall Goldsmith wrote a great book uh, with an even greater title, which is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And in leadership, that's so true. The very things that you not only have to do, but you should do in, say, the early stages of fun, that whole business of just saying yes to everything, yeah, that's Darwinianly necessary. That's That's the right thing to do. And if you don't do it, you'll get squelched in the fun stage because one of the few um, advantages that you have, one of the very few advantages that you have is flexibility. So you just say yes to everything and try, try somehow to do it. That is a good example of something that not only, it just doesn't turn neutral, it doesn't become you know uh, less helpful. It becomes that just saying yes to everything becomes a barrier to growth in the whitewater stage and helping leaders see that they, they may actually have to just slow things down a little bit for a year or two in order to come roaring back, uh, that's tough. 
so self-awareness is a common theme in the podcast. Interesting. Okay. So what is scale architects and how does that tie into predictable success and everything we've talked about today? Well, I mentioned a while back that uh, I, I had a, I had a difficult, uh, uh, actually did it twice uh, just to, to prove that self-awareness is something we all need. And, and I'm, I'm one of them. I'm, I made a dumb error of judgment twice in the last uh 15, 16 years, which okay. is that I, uh, on two occasions, uh, this may sound like I'm being hyperbolic, but it is literally what happened. On two occasions, I woke up uh, one morning, two separate mornings, about seven years apart, and had this recognition that I'd be, A, had been unhappy for months, and B, the reason was that my business was growing in terms of people and infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. And I just didn't want to do that. I, I And I actually can't do it. It's one of the things I've discovered about myself. I can either build my own business as I did all those years ago, going back to when I was a serial entrepreneur, or I can help other people build theirs. I can't do both. Okay. If I'm engaged in, you know, five hours worth of hiring interviews for a day, I'm done. I'm toast. I, I I can't help my clients. So I twice had to let people go. I, I looked around and thought, oh, no, I've done it again. I've let this, you know, I'm not talking about it. it's like 10, 11, 12 people. And so uh, I made a commitment to myself a while back that I, I just wasn't going to make that mistake again. But on the other hand, so I've got I've got myself and I've got a wonderful assistant who's about three feet from me. The listeners might be able to uh, if they listen. Uh, closely, they might be able to hear my assistant, uh, who has no opposable thumbs and snores most of the day, and uh, <laughs> needs to be walked three times in the day. And I've, I've, I'm resolutely committed to staying that way. But I really know uh, I, I'm, I'm very, very both proud and privileged to get. I mean, I literally get emails every single day, every single day. Somebody emails me, or as somebody did yesterday, just calls me, wants to do a Zoom session. I, I, many of them I've never heard of before, so I, but I've read your book or I saw you speak five years ago. And we've been using your principles. It's really changed my world. I, and I, I want the predictable success model out there, but I don't want to build a big, big company. So a couple of years ago, I met an incredible young man called Scotty Ritzheimer. And Scotty just blew me away. He had read the book and uh, flying over uh, Sweden, uh, going to visit his wife's family. Mm -hmm. Just it spoke to him in his business. Uh, he immediately started applying the, the principles. Uh, it transformed his business. And he wanted to see if there was some way that he could take the principles and teach them and uh, coach other people. And I so admired just how he approached all of it. I, I gave him a license and uh, after working with him for a while and uh, Scotty now runs a company called Scale Architects and uh, together he and I train individuals in the princ principles of predictable success and uh, they work with their own uh, clients coaching and consulting people using the predictable success model to help them scale. Very cool. We're, we're kind of coming to the end but I really want to cover one last thing with you you have a resources section where you have a blog and some quizzes and a learning center. What type of stuff do you have in there? Because I think it's really useful for a lot of people. 
Sure, and I, I, I appreciate you asking. So the, the simplest thing is just the blog. I, I put something out every Sunday evening. Um, it, there's a, a weekly blog post that goes out. Uh, but my personal uh, uh, fascination at the moment is in uh, putting as much of what I do online uh, on a sort of a self-serve basis as possible. And so we have about, I think we have about 14 different courses on our online, online learning center at the moment. And uh, they go all the way from, you know, just how to get out of early struggle. You know, how do you, what are the things to focus on to get out of early struggle into that fun stage? Uh, how to maximize your time and fun is another course. How to get out of whitewater is a third one. And then there's uh, our flagship course, uh, which uh, I call the Predictable Success Acceleration Program. And it just takes you through the whole model from soup to nuts. And I'm adding to that all the time. Uh, I, I love it. I enjoy teaching online. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's for me, my, my current uh, main project. So step by, stop by, have a look at that. Folks can, if you're interested in the visionary operator processor synergist uh, styles, uh, aspect of this, you can go to synergistquiz.com. It's all one word, just synergistquiz.com. And in about 10 minutes, you can get a full detailed uh, DNA, you know, what your uh, style is. I, I, we've been talking as if we're only one thing, but most of us are a, a typically a relatively complex mix of all four styles. And, and just understanding that, there's usually a lead style and then a couple of secondary styles. So synergistquiz.com, people can find out what their styles mix is. And at lifecyclequiz com lifecyclequiz.com all one word um you can i uh, take it takes a little longer it's about a 15 minute investment 20 minute investment uh you can analyze if it doesn't strike you immediately uh from what i've been sharing you can analyze what stage in the life cycle you're in oh well perfect less let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about predictable success the books and again mention any other links you want to mention it's all at predictablesuccess.com just go there and uh, I think we've got it pretty well labeled. And uh, by the way, given there's just me and uh, my assistant with no opposable thumbs, if you send me a message in the contact, contact us page on the website, it comes straight to me. Perfect, Les. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.